When it comes to addiction and recovery, everyone has something in common, a story. My name is Pastor Ed Treat, and I am founder and developer of the Center of Addiction and Faith. I've been in recovery from addiction for 34 years, and I've been a Lutheran pastor for 25 years. Throughout my years as a pastor, I've been frustrated that faith communities have paid little attention to an issue that is very pervasive and impacts so many. Addiction takes many forms, and it's a problem requiring a spiritual solution. I believe that the church could have an enormous impact on addiction if they would begin to learn more and do more. This is the mission of the Center of Addiction and Faith, to awaken faith communities to address addiction. In this episode of My Story of Addiction and Grace, we feature an ordained Episcopalian priest, Reverend Holly Cardone. Pastor Holly tells her amazing story of her struggle with addiction and her journey into recovery and the priesthood. Reverend Cardone is Associate Rector at St. Stephen's Church in Hollywood, California. Before attending seminary, she was an addiction spiritual counselor at Pox Treatment Center in Altadena, California. She is on the national board of the Episcopal Church Recovery Ministries, co-chair of EDLA Program Group on Recovery, and pastor at The Well. She leads recovery worship in La Crescenta, California. Pastor Holly describes herself as a liturgical, evangelical, contemplative Episcopalian with an eye on social justice. She shares her story today with me over Zoom at Minnesota Podcasting in St. Paul, Minnesota. I am talking to a priest from the Episcopalian Church, Holly Cardone. And where are you, Holly? Uh, currently, I am in Fullerton, California, Orange, what used to be known as the Orange Curtain, behind the Orange Curtain, Orange County. Why was it called uh, the Orange Curtain? I've never heard of that. Um, very traditionally, very conservative. Oh. So this is like sort of a bastion of conservatism and um, lots of... My gosh, um, what are you doing there? I know, right? I know, I know. (laughs) I I keep asking God that all the time. Megachurch. So a lot of megachurches flourished here. Yeah. You're relatively new as a priest. You came to this late in life, didn't you? I did. Um, uh, I'm 57 years old, and I've been a priest three years, I think. I think I was ordained to the priesthood in 2018 but i don't quote me on that yeah you know as somebody in recovery my my memory is yeah, yeah. you know not is it's very i don't know yeah confused. i get it i, I um, totally get but that. yeah so um so in the episcopal church you're ordained to the transitional diaconate first and you're a deacon for a little over six months and then you're ordained a priest so, um, and, and it's kind of a, for me, it was a long, arduous process. It was like, what am I doing here? Why am I in this? And certainly why am I in this denomination? Because mm. the Episcopal Church tends towards intellectualism. And I'm not an intellectual. I think I'm pretty smart, but I'm really a heart person. Like, mm-hmm. I want to know what's going on in people's heart. And so in that way, I think, did I say divorce three times? Mm. Lots of tattoos, you know. Um, had, uh, I was a lesbian for a while. I couldn't get a date, you know, so. (laughs) So you don't fit, you don't fit the mold, typical mold of an Episcopalian priest. I don't think so, but I hope that mold is stretching and giving way now to something new. Yeah. And so how's the church received you? The church I'm in. So I was, um, called as the rector of Emanuel Episcopal Church in Fullerton. 
And a manual traditionally has worked and lived outside of the diocesan expectations. And in the 70s and 80s and early... What does that mean? Early, what does that mean? And they've just yeah, been... They've was, behaved differently? Yeah, they're out. They're kind of outliers. And yeah. in the 70s, 80s, ni- early 90s, they were a really, really a vital, active member of the charismatic movement in the Episcopal Church, which was there wasn't a charismatic right. Episcopal Church. <laughs> I was say, I hadn't Fullerton heard of was the only one. And um, and so and the charismatic Paul, movement for some who might not know is just a little bit of a Holy Spirit movement where there was some excitement, some enthusiasm, some energy and. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yes. That, you know, Episcopalians are known as the frozen chosen. Yes. So for these people to be falling over in the spirit, um, being healed by the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. Really? You know, oh, yes. And in in, in, at Emmanuel contemporary worship and people are raising their hands and praising Uh Jesus and the Holy Spirit is everything. The bishop at the time was like, oh, no, you cannot do this. You cannot do this. Um, And they continued to do it. Father Paul was there about 30 years, and he had an associate, Father Rob. When Paul left, Rob became the rector, and Rob was there 32 years. And Rob had an associate, Mother Lynn, and Mother Lynn was there 27 years. Mm. So I'm the first rector, which means it's an old English word, I think, for captain of the ship. Yeah. So I'm the first female in this woman in this position. Tell us about your past. What was it like for you? So I grew up in a really, really crazy dysfunctional family where I think uh, dysfunction originates and where trauma is embedded in the body. Right. Yeah. There's no question in my mind. And my great grandfather, my grandfather, my father's father. And this was the information my brother found out when researching his citizenship for uh, Italian citizenship. That is, my grandfather from Lovello, Italy, left a wife and children to come to America. He then married my grandmother, Anita, and had my father and my uh, uncle, Bill, and never went back to claim the wife and mother and children he left in Italy. Nice. And my grandfather was known kind of as a con man and ended up being killed uh, in a bus accident in New York City. He was in a car, got hit by a bus. He was killed. My father was three and my uncle was one. Uh, Six months later, my grandmother on that side was killed uh, walking across the street uh, in Los Angeles, taking dinner to her uncle who ran a liquor store. So my father and my uncle Bill are orphans. And my father has never recovered. He's 86 years old. He um, quit working full time when he was 46 years old in 1976, around there. He um, was a womanizer. He's a liar, cheat, thief, drug addict, alcoholic, Hmm. pill popper, um, had five children. It's so significant to me now that I understand that my father's trauma, um, never being able to recover from that, not knowing in the 40s, 50s, or 60s what trauma even was, no way to help this man who, you know, eventually became the father of five five children, uh, divorced the two mothers of his children, um, and and a pathological nar- liar, narcissist, um, 
major personality disorders, always very, very ill, physically ill, always something wrong with him, always shopping for doctors, always looking for the easy way out. So my mom thought my father would be a great dad because he had three children and a wife in Sherman Oaks in the Valley. And uh, so my mom and my dad got together. My father um, finally left wife number one and those three little boys when I think I was already nine months old. So I'm saying all this because I think to say, oh, just to say, oh, I'm an alcoholic. I was born an alcoholic and it doesn't matter why I drank. Um, I don't think that gives us, us enough information to really understand who we are. And it's taken me my entire life to understand that the trauma, the decisions my parents made absolutely had adverse effects on myself, my little brothers, and my three older brothers from that first marriage. And my mom, God bless her, was hardcore, continues to be a hardcore Al-Anon personality, um, living in a fantasy world her whole life, thinking that this man who had a wife and three children in the valley would be a great father because he was married, not <laughs> seeing the reality of the situation at all. And, uh, and he wasn't a good father, right? I get the logic. Um, but, <laughs> it just yeah. doesn't hold water after a while. <laughs> of yeah, course, yeah. of course. And if you're someone, you know, like you and I and people who are have addictive uh uh, addictive natures. Living in a fantasy world is how we get through life. That's how I how I lived, how my mother lived. Consequently, it caused a lot of trauma. My mom raised my brother and I. Uh, we would see my older brothers pretty often. And um, my father finally divorced my mother when he when uh, when I was 13 years old. I hadn't started drinking or using drugs yet, but there, I was definitely emotionally unstable. I always felt, I went to uh, first through eighth grade in Catholic school, and I always felt um, I was on the outside. And there was also a part of me that I recognize now that was fighting for her place. Like this little kid part of me is fighting for her place in the world. But without, you know, what we say in 12-step program, without having that um, that booklet or that manual of how to live. And it almost feels like, you know, I'm a spiritual person having a human experience and I'm on this planet going like, what the fuck is happening? And why didn't anybody tell me it was going to be this hard? <laughs> and um, so when I was 13, I just, you know, uh, or younger than that in elementary school, I decided I'm not going to follow the girls and be popular. I would rather lead the girls who are on the outside and be the leader of the group. So my personality is asserting herself, but with always with this feeling of not being good enough. Mm. I mean, I find another group because I'm not good enough to be in that group. Mm. Not rich enough, not pretty enough, not smart enough, um, all that stuff. My father went off and he found a woman who was well, really wealthy. And, um, and then he was on his own, he's been on his own crazy journey ever since. Uh, we would see him off and on, but he never showed up, couldn't show up at graduations, couldn't show up at weddings, uh, couldn't show up for birthday parties. And we were the kids, my brother and I sitting on the stoop, waiting for dad to show up when he said he was going to pick mm. us up at five o'clock on Friday and never did. So my mom ends up marrying her therapist. And this <laughs> therapist was a psychologist in Pasadena. He was very, very prominent in Pasadena belong to the Tournament of Roses and the Rotary and Annandale Country Clubs. And, you know, she drove, drove a Mercedes and they had houses and they had boats. 
Um, and he was uh, extremely uh, violent and abusive. He was the couples therapist for my mom and my father. And then when my father left my mother, my mother continued on with therapy with him. Mm. So today, you, and then he came back after they terminated uh, therapy, they came back, he came back and asked her out and they got married about a year later. But before they got married, he um, had hit her, pushed her out of a car. And so she already knew what was in store and she uh, married him anyway. And that sort of began this really destructive, horrible uh, situation with my little brother and I. And this man, um, you know, my mother and my brother and I were a pod and he, he, he blew that up. And my mother went into an Al-Anon, what I call an emotional blackout for the next 15 years mm. and couldn't stand up for us, couldn't take care of us. And I started drinking and using. I went to uh, public school, public high school from Catholic junior high and um, <clears throat> public school. Once again, I'm feeling like everybody's got the handbook. They all look really nice and clean and, and they seem to be showing up and they seem to be able to do their homework and they can follow through in a way that I just cannot. I can't show up. I'm already starting to drink, um, use, smoke a lot of weed. And, and high school was just an absolute shit show. I always had this feeling that there was something else going on besides what I could see because I did not fit into what I could see. So I'm on the outside looking in and feeling like, well, there must be something else. And this is when I begin my spiritual journey. I feel like my spiritual journey started about 14, 15 years old, reading a lot of new age books. Um, Edgar Casey was reading um, Shirley MacLaine when mm -hmm. Shirley MacLaine was writing books about that whole thing, uh, whatever yeah, that thing uh, is. Reincarnation. New and, Age yeah, movement. New Age yeah. Movement. Yep, yep. New Age. Yep. And that sort of drove me. Um, my, that's followed me my entire life. That has been an impulse. And we say in Alcoholics Anonymous, right, that within every man, woman, and child is this fundamental idea of God. I really believe that fundamental idea of the divine within me is probably what saved my life because I could connect to that. I was curious. I wanted to know what was what else was going on. And I was really destructive. I dropped out of high school. I ran away from home. Um, I moved to Lubbock, Texas. I got pregnant uh, with the guy that I was dating who lived in Lubbock. And here was another thing that that would kind of show up throughout my um, my drinking life and into my sober life. And that is I would have these moments of revelation. And one morning I'm in Lubbock, Texas, and I wake up out of this dream or consciousness or whatever it was into consciousness. And this thought comes to me that this is not where I'm supposed to be. You do not have to be here. You can go now and everything's going to be okay. And I got on the next Greyhound bus. I went back to uh, Pasadena from Lubbock, Texas, and I got, I was three months pregnant and I terminated that pregnancy. I knew I was, would be, uh, motherhood was not, you know, it was just not something that I could ever see myself doing. Um, and my mom was still married to that man and it continued to still be really uh, destructive and turbulent in my house. And I just kind of floundered for a really long time. Um, I never went back to high school. I don't have a GED. I never got my, um, my high school diploma. I just lied to people. And back then you could go to community college. And I went to community college for five years. Um, in 1986, I knew I was an alcoholic by the time I was 20. 
And that's probably not around 1986, right? Because I was born in oh, 1984. I knew I was an alcoholic. I went to one AA meeting. Uh, somebody I knew had gotten sober. And I went to one AA meeting. And I ended up going to Al-Anon. My mom started going to Al-Anon, which saved her life. No question. She was finally able to get out of that marriage somewhere around 1992 or 93. But in the 80s, I, was, I, I started going to Al-Anon. And I really believed at that time, my problem was that I was a woman who loved too much. I was always selling my soul to the devil for a relationship. And if I met you in the bar, we would just go home and have sex. And I had sex with whoever wanted to have sex with me because I equated sex with love. And so I started to go to Al-Anon and people that I knew uh, from AA were in Al-Anon, but I never did a fourth step. Um, I liked the spirituality of the 12 steps. Uh, but I didn't do that four step because I don't, I didn't want to give up drinking. Mm. And in 1988, um, I met a guy in a bar in 1986 and 1988, we decided, well, we were, people were asking us, well, what are you going to do now? And we were like, oh, I guess we'll get married. And he was um, codependent, Al-Anon, the sweetest person. I've always attracted really nice men um, that I've always been able to run over um, and abuse emotionally. And we got married, and on the my wedding night, I walked through a plate glass window. And um, from, I walked from, through the plate glass window because <clears throat> I was drunk, yeah. and I was I had been drinking all day, and I uh, was waiting for someone to who had just left to like go score coke from our from the dealer, so we could just party all night. And my mom had shut the door and uh, the sliding glass door, and I ended up in the emergency room. I got sober the first time July. 5th. I think it was July 5th. I stayed sober for four years. And um, I always tell this part of my story because it was, I think it was really significant. And that was that in 1988, people were going to, they were going to Codependence Anonymous and reading John Bradshaw. And they were mm. starting to parent their child within. Do you remember that? Yep, Everybody yep. was taking a teddy bear. Yep to CODA. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. <laughs> I had a sponsor who, um, who was, we never worked the steps. We didn't really do, um, uh, I didn't, she didn't tell me to get commitments in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, she, uh, at one point finally said, you know, I can't be your sponsor because sponsor is code that's codependent. And, um, I need you to be my friend. And I was 24 years old. And I didn't know how to be a friend. I didn't even know what that meant. We were definitely enmeshed. And um, she, I was closer to her emotionally than I was to even my husband at the time. And I ended up, um, I ended up smoking pot during that sober period. I was waiting tables, had gone to community college for five years. During that time, right before I started drinking again, in June 1992, I moved to Chicago. With your husband? No, husband and I got divorced. Oh, okay. I got divorced. I let that guy go. Oh, it was a big. It was a, it was a mess. There was one point where I moved, where I went to Hawaii on a vacation, and I stayed, and I was married, <laughs> and I, I find myself exactly like my father. My behavior is like my father: mm. cheating lying, leaving a whole apartments full of furniture and animals and going to Hawaii for a vacation and never coming back. And then finally, six months later, waking up just like in Lubbock, Texas, like, what the hell am I doing here? And, um, and that was another really huge motivating thing in my life was I'm going to get my shit together. I've got to get my shit together. If I could just get my shit together, 
all, and it was always like that. I was always trying. I find myself even today doing it. Um, I think I might have a little bipolar disorder, although I've never been diagnosed with bipolar. But like, if I could just get my shit together, I would be okay. And how desperately I wanted to be okay with no tools. And I think back then, which we didn't have now, we have treatment, right? There was no treatment. People there. My mom had no idea what to do with me. We were screaming and yelling at each other. And when I ran away, she was like, well, maybe that's the best thing for her because I can't help her here. Uh, yeah, so I divorced husband number one and uh, moved to Chicago. And I was an actress in L.A. And so I thought, well, I'll go to Chicago. It's a big theater scene. I'm going to be an actress in Chicago. I needed if there was one moment in the middle of the winter. I knew a couple people I had met through my older brother who had been in Chicago so I met these people from the theater world there. Um, but, you know, they weren't alcoholics. And I um, smoked pot a couple times in Chicago. And then I got really lonely and really sad because it's really, really cold. And <laughs> I remember it was around Christmas and I found this Alano Club and I wanted a meeting. I'm like, I need a meeting. And I went to the meeting and it was a Christmas party. And I sat and talked to some people. And I don't know, I heard somebody just recently say, I took that as a sign that I could go out and drink, right? That's permission to drink. And I started drinking again in June of 1992. And I stayed drunk that, that summer, June until September 23rd, 1992. And, you know, again, all I'm doing during this time is trying to get this, oh God, it's so sad and so pathetic how desperately I wanted someone to love me who just didn't. And um, I spent days and hours and weeks and chasing how, and, after this person. And how much that would fix everything. Oh, certainly it would fix me. There was no question. If if I just had this thing. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking and it's really, really sad. And so uh, what happened was I um, ended up um, in a bar in September. must have been 22nd because I got sober on the 23rd. Um, 22nd. And um, we were in a bar. I went home with this guy. We were friends. We had sex. Uh, the next morning, I'm hungover. I call my job and I said, I can't come in today. And the manager, to his credit, said, OK, I'm, I'll cover you today, but you've got to get your shit together. And there it is, like vocalized outside of my brain, right? That, yeah, right. I got to get my shit together. And so it's like six or seven o'clock in the morning and I'm walking um, walking home to my apartment and thinking the whole time, Okay, I'm going to move jobs. I've got to start working out. I need to become a vegetarian. I've got to quit smoking. I need to go to the gym more and lose weight. I need to get a haircut. Um, I need to get new headshots. It was like uh, just a litany of of everything that I needed to do outside of myself to, 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 to fix myself. And I walked into my apartment and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. I had no intention of call, calling Alcoholics Anonymous Central Office in Chicago. Um, and I just did. And these are always the things, these moments of illumination or um, awareness, realization that just confirms to me that there is a divine entity. God is alive and well, and God is always trying to get our attention. Uh, so Rob Bell said, maybe the bush is always burning. We just don't always see it. And, um, and for whatever reason, I saw it. Uh, I asked for the next available, when was the next meeting? 
And I got in a cab and I went down to the Lincoln Park Alano Club in Chicago. That was September 23rd, 1992. And I don't know if this is true. This is what I remember that I walked in the door just as they were saying, is anyone new? And I raised my hand, like walking across the room to my seat. My name's Holly. I'm an alcoholic. I've been out for four months. And um, it was uh, that moment that I hadn't had an AA before that I had been of coming home. This was absolutely where I needed to be. And these were absolutely the people that I needed to get sober with. And, um, and those people there held me and loved me. And, and I sat and it feels like I sat on that sofa for two years straight, crying and talking and, and working steps and getting a sponsor. And mm. I got a sponsor and her name was Julie. And she said, um, I, when I asked her, she said, yeah, I'll be your sponsor, but I'm not going to be your friend. I have friends and you're not one of those, but I will teach you how to work the steps. And you're not going to call me and, and, and complain to me and talk to me about your problems. What I'm going to teach you, I mean, like literally word for word is what she said. I'll teach you how to have a relationship with God. And then you in turn will go and teach another woman how to have a relationship with God. Wow. And, um, and it was my, it was the first time I understood on that deep level that those first 164 pages, the only thing those pages are about is finding a relationship with God. Because Bill says, alcoholism is merely a symptom. We have to get down to causes and conditions. And, Bill, Bill, um, and I, Bill W., the founder of AA, Bill right? Wilson. Yep, yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. Bill Wilson. Um, it was extraordinary. It was like, oh my gosh, this, this, this program is about God. It, <laughs> literally, these were like the flashes of awareness I was having at the time. And, um, and I did whatever my sponsor told me to do. I just did it because I was desperate. And at that time, my motivation was I want to feel good about myself despite my circumstances. I would say that to myself. And I and whatever Julie told me to do, if she told me to listen to uh, preaching, teaching tapes, I did that. And if she told me to read Louise Hay, You Can Heal Your Life, I did that. I pray every day, do affirmations at one point. Um, I was a mess and I had had, I, I was having, I think at the time, what I thought was a nervous breakdown. Now looking back hindsight, because I had those a few more times, I think I was having a panic attack Mm -hmm. and I thought I was going to going insane. And, um, I was sure that I was going to have a psychotic break and end up homeless on the streets of Chicago. The one time my dad had any good advice, I called him and said, yeah, I'm not doing so well. I think I really need to go get some medication. There's something really, really wrong with me. And um, at the time that I, it was after a meeting, I had gone to a meeting and I told this woman, I, was, I had been sobbing in the bathroom at DePaul University. I got to DePaul University. I got some sobriety, a couple years of sobriety. And that looked like a possibility. I could go back to college. Maybe I was smart enough. And I was in school sobbing in the corner of the bathroom on that cold tile floor, calling my mom. There's something wrong with me. I had done that once before in Pasadena at community college. And when I went to a meeting, a woman after the meeting took me aside and she said, have you been sexually abused? I said, no, no, of Hmm. course not. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I went home and I called my dad and my dad said, why don't you call your sponsor? 
Really? And I did. I know. He doesn't say much. That's wise. But that was one thing he did. And that I actually followed his direction because I literally thought I needed to be hospitalized. I thought for sure that was that was it. And she said, your problem is, Julie said, your problem is you don't love yourself and you haven't finished the steps. But the promises are after step nine. And when you get through the steps, step nine, and you experience begin to experience the promises, you will know God and God's love, and you in turn will love yourself. Hmm. And I believed her. I just had, I believed her and I did it. I did everything she told me to do. And that's when she started, you know, on uh, bringing in new spiritual teachers and having me do these affirmations out loud. She said, we believe everything we hear. Julie said, we believe everything we hear. So if you're constantly repeating your, to yourself all these negative things about yourself, that's what you believe about who you are. So you have to read these affirmations out loud in a mirror. I was like, Ugh. <laughs> but I did it because I wanted to feel better. I, it's pain is the great motivator. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I did what she told me to do. And it seemed like it took a long time. And I began to come out of that depression or that um, anxiety, panic attack. Um, what I know now to be P- PTSD, yeah, like right. was triggered. Yeah, it literally saved my life. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. The Center of Addiction and Faith will continue to regularly present new inspirational stories about God's saving work. I hope you will subscribe and listen to them all. Along with these podcasts, the Center of Addiction and Faith is offering many other helpful resources. We have our annual conference that brings together today's best and brightest scholars, theologians, speakers, authors, and practitioners in the field of addiction studies. We also offer a monthly webinar on addiction with a special focus on racial issues. We have a growing number of online 12-step recovery and support groups, some specifically just for clergy. We have training events to develop addiction ministry programs in a parish setting. We support advocacy work. We are developing online education for understanding addiction in the context of doing ministry. We offer daily devotions. There's more we want to offer. After our first two successful conferences, there was overwhelming encouragement that I continue to do more of this work, and so I've left the parish ministry to do this full-time. What's clear to me is that this work is needed now more than ever. What's also clear to me is that we need a lot of help to make it all happen and keep it going. I don't like asking for help, but we can't do this alone, and we can't get help if we don't ask. So I'm asking, will you please help us do this work? Will you make a donation? Or better yet, will you make a regular monthly commitment of any size to sustain this work over time? Even small gifts given regularly make a big difference. If your answer is yes, please go to our website, addictionandfaith.com, and click on the Donate button and help us work to help others. Thank you for listening, and God bless you. I got a degree in religious studies from DePaul. I met a man uh, at the job. I was a waitress and I you was You went working. for religious studies. Did you have anything in mind to do with that? No, I knew I loved religious studies. I'd taken it at the community college and I, at, at uh, PCC and I loved it. 
and I took it at DePaul and I began to believe that I might be a Christian because one of my professors, one of my first professors was John Dominic Crossan, who's the preeminent historical Jesus scholar. And he said uh, he, he taught Jesus in his context of time, place, politics, social structure, economic structure. And I was blown away. I was like, oh, my God, Jesus is a person. I didn't know Jesus was a human. Um And when I graduated, I thought, well, now what? And I had, you know, that moment and it's and the moment was like, well, you could go into ordained ministry. I'm like, yeah, talking to God. Right. I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. I'm not a Christian. I'm Episcopalian. (laughs) I didn't even know. (laughs) Like, how would that happen? You know, but I got a little sidetracked because I got I got pregnant and then I got married. And the man I picked, another emotionally underdeveloped <laughs> human um, who was also a drug addict and an alcoholic. But I did know that I that God had changed me. I had um, this experience of that God had changed me to the point where God would entrust me with a baby. And I really wanted to have a child. And so David and I got married and we had a baby and uh, we ended up moving from Chicago. He was born and raised in Chicago. We moved from Chicago back to Los Angeles with our son, Cooper, who's now 25. And my uh, had another child, daughter, Lily. I started through the ordination process at All Saints Church Pasadena, where I had gone as a youth and young adult. I was going to meetings. I had Uh, met another woman who was also in the ordination process at All Saints Church Pasadena, and she was an employee there, so she was working. We had a torrid affair for a week. She was married. I was not a lesbian, but then I'm like, well, maybe I'm a lesbian. And I, um, I say all this because what I've learned more than, I've learned so many things, but one of the things that really has taught me to have compassion for people is we can't choose. We can't make a choice until we know we have a choice. And what I mean by that was at that time, I am still reacting to life from this place of uh, trauma, insecurity, fear. I am literally um, acting from impulse as alcoholic as I am. And I am somebody that was going to meetings I was in reco- I was not only in recovery, I was in therapy. I was all I've been in therapy since I was 25 years old. And it was like this person, it could have been a man or a woman, but she could see me and I felt seen. Mm. And it lasted a week. And I told my husband, like, maybe I'm a maybe I'm a lesbian now. I don't know what my problem is. Maybe that's my problem. <laughs> this whole time. I didn't know I was gay. And I was horrified at my behavior. I was ashamed. I was horrified. I was disgusted. I had two little kids. I couldn't go to AA meetings and tell anybody about it. And um, But you were honest so with I your knew- husband about it. You weren't hiding it yeah. from your husband. I tried. We stayed separated for um, about. Oh, because of that? Because of that relationship? Nine, we stayed. Yeah, yeah oh, okay. we were, he left right away. Yeah, yeah. He left right away. He was pissed. He was drinking a lot and alcoholic to the point of like falling asleep on the bathroom floor mm. um, and not functional in the marriage in terms of we didn't have like a emotional connection. 
or spiritual connection. We could have sex, but sex is easy to have, you know, especially somebody who comes from the kind of trauma I I Mm. come from. Sex is perfunctory. You know, it's just, there's no emotional connection there. He, uh, so he left. I was desperate to get, put the whole thing back. I put, I had to put the whole thing back together. There was no way I was going to keep these kids together. I was going to, I was not, I'd been married once. I was not going to let that happen again. And we were going to get these kids raised and I would get sober later. And I started drinking in January of 2000 and I drank for nine months and I tried to stay in that marriage for nine months. And I tried to, to, to be a mom to those kids drunk. And my daughter, my daughter was like two and a half and my son was five. And um, we had moved into this little house together. And, I, you know, just one more time, it's like over and over, one more time, God lifts me up by the scruff of the neck and, and just drops me into Alcoholics Anonymous one more time. And I'm sitting on that patio and the kids are, um, the kids are asleep and I'm smoking cigarettes and drinking beer. And God said, you can leave this marriage and you're going to be okay. And the kids are going to be okay. And David is going to be okay. And I did. It was just like when I was in Lubbock, it was the same thing. It was like, okay, I got nothing else. So I'm just going to trust that what you're saying to me, whatever this is, is the truth. Because whatever truth I'm manufacturing is not working. I've been sober now since November 3rd, the year 2000. So I'll be 21 in November. It wasn't easy. Shit was not okay at a lot of it. Uh, My ex-husband ended up marrying a woman. They continue to drink and she has some personality, personality issues and borderline personality issues that have been devastating to my kids. Um, They sued us for custody. I got married again. I'm like a hopeless, hopeless believer in marriage and long-term relationships that's the only excuse (laughs) i have that i keep getting married my mom uh divorced that man and she uh went to al-anon and started to heal she helped me and my ex-husband raise those kids together um when i when i had left david that that my the father of my children i lived with my mom for another three years until i got married again my third husband was in the program he continues today. My kids are 25 and 23, he continues to be an amazing stepfather, even though we're divorced. He um, he fought for those kids. He helped me fight for them. He believed that what their dad and stepmom uh, was doing was uh, incredibly destructive and damaging to, to, to my kids. And it was, and it really was. I had to send my daughter when she was 17 to wilderness program to an uh another um, school, therapeutic boarding school. Mm. Uh, She went to therapeutic boarding school. She was in a horribly destructive relationship with a boy who, a young man who was cruel and scary. And I felt like I had no control over the situation and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to raise children because no one raised me. My mom would give me advice about raising teenagers. And I'm like, Excuse me, you you ne- you didn't raise us. You abandoned us, right? Yeah, right, right. We survived. We survived, and all along the way, you know, um, this last time I've been sober. This time, Alcoholics Anonymous has absolutely been my first priority. I started down the ordination path ten years after that affair with that woman and and that divorce in another church, and I went to seminary. 
And I knew because of the stories I had heard in Alcoholics Anonymous, people who had this incredible gift to go back to college or university, Mm -hmm. like I'm supposed to be in a trailer in Lubbock, Texas with grandkids at 45. Do you know what I mean? It is only by grace that God has moved me along this path of life. And, um, and I knew at that time that I would give everything that I had back to God and Alcoholics Anonymous. So if I had a paper due and I needed a meeting, I went to a meeting. If I got beat, I didn't care because I knew if I got drunk, I would have nothing. And this time, these last 20, almost 21 years has been uh, Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step program. I have a sponsor who's uh, 35 years sober. Mm. Her sponsor is 45 years sober. I go to Al-Anon. I have uh, sponsees that I work with, and I have this relationship with God that I wasn't sure would fit into a church setting. I stayed in the ordination process for eight years, and um, I wanted to quit. And all along the way, you know, God speaks through people. We, as a Christian, I'm an incarnational person and God spoke through Jesus. God lived through Jesus of Nazareth. And now God lives through the people in my life. And at that time, those people said, you can't quit. You're my priest. You have to keep going. And, um, and my mentor dragged me like the last hundred yards, uh, to (laughs) five years when I turned my life and my will of ordination into the Mm. hands of Father Jamie at St. Stephen's Hollywood. He encouraged me in the way um, nobody else could. He believed that I could do it. He, There was a moment when I thought, I am not worthy. I said, sobbing, like I'm crying now, I said, Jamie, maybe I'm too damaged. Maybe I just don't have this thing that I need. To be a clergy person, a priest in the Episcopal Church, and he said that was not true. He said that may have been your story, but it's not your story anymore. I don't know if anybody else could have said it to me in that moment the way he said it because I heard him. And one more time, I'm willing to believe what somebody else says than what my own mind says mm. to me. I fell in love um, with my one of a really good friend that I had in the program for a long time. We fell in love. And um, in 2017, that relationship ended and I was devastated. And I was devastated to the point of, oh, my God, I understand why people get at the time I was 16 years sober, 17 years sober. I understand I was 16 years sober. Uh, 2016, we broke up. Why people drink with long term sobriety? Because the reaction I was having to this breakup was not unlike the reaction I had to whatever was happening at DePaul University in that bathroom Mm -hmm. in 1997 when I'm sobbing on the cold tile floor. And I had been working um, in treatment as well as working at the church. And we were learning from our clinical director. We were talking about trauma. And I realized, oh, my God, this is trauma. My daughter, who was like, 20 at the time, let's see, however many, five, so no, she was 18. I said, I can't breathe. I don't know what's happening. Um, I feel like I have to get out of my skin, but I can't take my skin off. And and I'm sobbing and crying all the time. And she said, mom, you're having a panic attack. I got help from a trauma therapist and did uh, EMDR, which is um, sure. yep. Yep. eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Yep. Um, 
And, um, and it changed my life because there was a reason why at six years old, I'm sexually acting out with my brother that I had that memory. It, there was a reason why every time, you know, as a little girl, I'm sexually acting out with other little girls. And there's a reason why at 15, 16, 17, I'm sleeping with every boy that will even look at me or pay attention to me. And I did not know, I did not have a physical or a cognitive conscious memory of sexual abuse. But when I talked to my mother, she said, yes, you came home from nursery school with a very red vagina. And I, she said, I didn't know what to do. And I took you to the pediatrician who, right. And, um, and I didn't remember any of that. I didn't remember that. I was also like stalked when I was five. It was a bad scene. And I don't know if it was that. Um, but that's what I mean about being able to make a choice that once I had all the information, now my life makes sense. My life didn't make sense for a really long time. Why has it taken me so long with 30 years of, of therapy to finally cultivate some love and compassion for myself? Why is it now I can finally live in the present moment? Why now after this is since 2016 and I did... Uh, three months or six months of trauma therapy. Um, why can I finally not, why am I free now from blaming myself for everything? Mm. So when people say, you know, I, I was born an alcoholic. Well, I have two little children. They have all the genetic predispositions to alcoholism and, and drug addiction and obsessiveness that I do. Um, and, and right now, neither one of them are exhibiting alcoholic behavior, but through their life uh, and through my own learning and growing with all of the therapy and all of the trauma therapy, we can have conversations, real, honest conversations about where they came from and mm. what's going on. Because I think the other thing that living in the fantasy, there was never a validation of reality ever. I can trust my own mind now. When something happens at church and I'm like, oh, that's not right. I believe myself. There's a reason why I'm having this reaction and they're having a reaction based on their own life story right. and their own trauma. They may not be alcoholic, but I can certainly relate to that. And mm. I can hold a place of love and compassion for them because we're all broken. Yep. We're all wounded. We're all damaged. Many, many, many of us. Some maybe not as bad as others. Mm -hmm. Some maybe more resilient. Um, some able to heal themselves in a way that many of us can't, who need a lot more support. I think the other thing that I've been able to do um, is finally accept if I'm going to live fully, completely in the moment, one day at a time, in relationship with you, and with God, there are a lot of things I need to take care of in order to do that. I have to make sure I'm praying and meditating. I have to make sure I'm sleeping. I have to make sure I'm getting exercise. I have to have a therapist. I have to have a psychiatrist. I was diagnosed with clinical depression during the period I was leaving my husband. Mm -hmm. um, I have to make sure I'm taking my, my depression medication. I have to have some fun. I have to be gentle, gracious, and loving with myself. And that's a, a lot of work. That's a lot of work. Hmm. Some people don't need that much work to get on in the world. And for them, what a blessing. I don't know what that's like. But I certainly um, 
am able to treat myself with so much more grace than, than I ever have. And it's taken a long time. And, um, and my son and my daughter have, um, a freedom at their age at 23, at 25, that I never had, never had anyone say, God, I love you. And you're, you're amazing. Cooper, my son, Cooper, he reads like, um, the four agreements for fun. He read the body keeps the score for fun. You know, he's, uh, he's curious about the world and, and how we operate and why we do the things we do. He's able to take care of himself. Limit has boundaries, limits his time with his dad and stepmom. And, um, and my daughter's the same way. So the hope in that is the cycle can be broken. It doesn't need to be perpetuated. I really, really hope so. I yeah. really, I want, that's what I want to believe. It seems so at this point, yeah. but um, I've also learned to really try to not project into the future. Right, right, future right, trip. right. No, that's, yeah, but it's, you know, by you getting well, you've given them more hope to get well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. At least they know there's help. They've both been in therapy. I put them in therapy at a really, really young age. Yeah. And that's helped too. As I listen to your story, I think about, my gosh, how many people are out there living those lives of desperation and um, looking for some kind of hope or some way uh, for their lives to be changed. And um, it's kind of, it, it, it's pretty widespread. I mean, we're watching, especially after this COVID thing, watching uh, people with relapses happening like crazy and mental health yeah. issues, domestic violence, suicide. Um, everybody's messed up. Yep. And uh, God can take people that are messed up like you and me and, and do some good with us. <laughs> That's kind of hopeful, isn't it? Yeah. And then so we serve uh, this church, the institutional church that doesn't really do much with this issue. Does that, does, do you ever notice that? Yeah, I notice it every day, all the time. And um, and I, yeah, I think what you're doing is amazing, and and um, it gives me a lot of hope. And as we're talking, and and you emailed me, I thought I need to get back on that um, bandwagon of promoting uh, faith and addiction and recovery in the diocese of Los Angeles, because. How many, what's the, what the statistics are one out of 10 person, yeah. 10 people are yeah. alcoholics. And then you take that one out of 10 and they impact five other people in a negative way. Right. So it's half, right. it's half of all of us at least. One of the things when I started the ordination process and when I started interviewing for this call at a manual, I thought, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to bullshit them. And um, I'm not going to pretend I'm somebody I'm not. So what you see is what you get. And that has been incredibly freeing. And I think it's also, I've had people say at church, thank you so much, because I tell the truth about alcoholism, addiction, yeah. mental illness, about all of my, all of what I would say were the things that contributed to the greatest sin, which is separation from God. Yeah. So sexually acting out, running away from home, not feeling good about myself, all of those things. I talk about all that stuff. And I know that there are other pastors, I want to say Molly Finney. I can't remember if that's her name. I'll have to look it up. Um, Standing Naked Before God, who is um, a pastor. She's now a pastor in Oakland. And she 
Yeah, the art of public confession, uh, standing naked before God, and her name is Molly Finney Basket, or Basket, Basket. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this whole idea, and, and she grew a church on the East Coast, I think in Massachusetts, that people to that the church needs to be the place for people to bring their whole broken, damaged, afraid, sad, mm. joyful, excited, enthusiastic the selves. Yeah. We have to be able to bring our whole selves and tell the truth about who we are in that place. And that's one of the things that, of course, Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step programs do so brilliantly yeah. because that's the first thing we do. We confess our brokenness yeah. to each other and then we relate on this level that is the right. impetus, the And the irony is healing. in the church, we begin our services by confessing our brokenness and then acting like everything's fine. Uh, you know, exactly. we, we celebrate an ancient story of redemption, but we don't talk about any of the ones that are happening right under our noses. So I think that's the big challenge for, yeah. for me, I feel like. It's how do I, how does church become that place? Um, you know, this public confession where people stood up and told their stories yeah, yeah. of brokenness in Molly's church. Maybe that's more of the way to do it. And yeah. we haven't gone there yet. But That's my longtime beef with the church is that it's, it's not a place that's safe to be uh, broken. And that's, I don't right. think that's. I don't think that's what Jesus would have in mind. Yeah. And, right. and it's, uh, you know, and I think that was the problem in Jesus' day. I mean, the broken people weren't, you know, and that was his beef with the world then. It hasn't changed. <laughs> the church is still a place where broken people are not. They're ostracized, even though everybody says, oh, well, everybody's welcome here, but they're not. I mean, you know, if you're broken, you don't fit in there. You don't. Right. And so I've always thought, well, how do I get recovering people into the church? Because I know going to church has been part of my you know, recovery, it, it has blessed my recovery. You know, it's a gift. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, but so I thought, oh, how do I get recovering people into the church? Because they'll be blessed by it. But then after all this time, I think, you know, recovering people are actually in pretty good shape. It's church people that need to get into recovery. <laughs> and so they have this problem too, but don't know it. I mean, that's the funny right. thing is there's this codependency in the church that's rampant. And, right. and and they're broken in ways that they can't imagine. And so people come to me to talk about the addicts in their life. And I say, well, you need to go to Al-Anon. And they go, but I don't have this problem. I, I get up in the morning. I pay the bills. I'm responsible. I'm a good human being. I don't, I don't need help. It's like, well, but you do. And you don't even know it. That's right. And then, you know, in family systems theory, they know if you, ha- if you identify somebody in your family who's an addict, you send them to treatment. But if you don't deal with a family and put them back in that family, they're not going to get well. So right. I extend that to the society to say, well, we keep dealing with addicts, but we don't deal with a society that helps perpetuate it all because we're all... Exactly. You talked a lot about trauma, and I, I really appreciated that because I'm amazed after all the years I've been in recovery that how much trauma, my childhood trauma still triggers in me so easily. You know, it just will... Yeah. A simplest thing will set me off and send me spinning, and it's helpful for to know where it comes from, but it doesn't stop it from happening. You know, I mean, it just right. it's still, I'm still, I, I kind of have come to terms with the fact that I'm this uh, kind of this broken person who, who needs a lot of help and, and work, like you just described, but I can have a good life if I take care of those things. But I'm going right. to, I'm going to always have that, you know, that, that brokenness is there, and, uh, but it's okay. I can live with it. And that's a great yeah. message to tell other people. You don't have to be perfect. Yeah. Gosh, I sure listened, enjoyed listening to your story. I was just riveted. I mean, just absolutely fascinated. 
You know, and it, it is. It's because I see God in there, all, you know, at work. It's just so you, you preach to me about God, but you, your story shows me God in a very meaningful Good. way. So thank you. For well, that. thank you. I, I do want to give a shout out to Father Paul, who was the found, kind of the founding rector of Emmanuel, because he was a huge 12-step proponent. Huh. And, um, and people still talk about the year he did, uh, he preached on the steps starting in January with the first step. And there was a judge um, who would tell people when she saw them, alcoholics and addicts, you have to go to the 12-step church. And that was Emmanuel. Oh, really? And they, 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 many people came there with just tremendous loss and brokenness and had a lot of healing. Yeah. And so, so now it's like, how do we keep mo- not only moving that forward, but opening up more to, to be that place of, to yeah, welcome people yeah, and, yeah. Well, we can get there, we, but, you know, we're, yeah. we're fighting uh, denial. <laughs> well, Holly, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, because here's the thing about telling the story. Like, I don't know how far I've come until I tell the story again. And I'm like, yeah, oh, my yeah. God, I can't believe that was me. Yes. I did all that. And then I'm like, alive. Like, every day above ground is a beautiful, miraculous <laughs> yeah, day, right. you know? I know. It brings me back. You know, it does the same thing for me. It's like, oh, I'm so lucky. You know, yeah, it fills me with gratitude. So thank you. My Story of Addiction and Grace is a podcast production of the Center of Addiction and Faith, which can be found online at addictionandfaith.com. If you'd like to ask Pastor Ed Treat or one of our Pastor Upcoming guests a question that will be aired on a future show, simply call 612-352-9177 and leave a message. Please know that when you leave a message, it may be used in whole or in part on a future podcast episode. Again, That phone number is 612-352-9177. Please hit subscribe on whatever podcast source you found us on and rate and review our show. We love to hear feedback. My Story of Addiction and Grace is recorded at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting, located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Find them online at mnpodcasting.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, or policies of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Center of Addiction and Faith, Minnesota Podcasting, or any other religious or business organization.